Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we continue our two-part conversation with Carl Bernstein about his memoir, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, coming out in paperback in January 2023. Carl is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for public service for his and Bob Woodward's coverage of the Watergate story, which led to the resignation of President Nixon and set a new standard for investigative reporting. He's the author of five books, including All the President's Men, biographies of Pope John Paul II and Hillary Clinton, and his family's experience during the McCarthy era. Additionally, Carl is an on-air CNN political analyst and contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Carl, welcome back to That Said. Good to be here again. We ended part one of our conversation during the March on Washington in 1963. At this point in your tenure with the Washington Star, what was your position and what did that job entail? By then I was a dictationist and, and, and I was covering because of this great editor, especially uh, two editors, three, Sid Epstein, the city editor, Mary Lou Werner, the Pulitzer Prize winner that I described earlier, who was the deputy state editor. And they sent me to cover all kinds of assignments, everything you could, could imagine. And I did a series, an investigative series, about the chaplains at the University of Maryland, where I briefly was a student before I dropped out and got thrown out a couple times for academic insufficient performance. You know, I never finished college. But let me set the table in some ways for understanding both local reporting and the fact that this was the capital of the United States. The following illustrates the first thing. I'd been in the paper a couple weeks, and the head copy boy said, Bernstein, go to Burning Tree Country Club. Ike, still the president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower, is playing golf there, and we've got and, and we've got a photographer there taking pictures of Ike playing golf. You get the film from him and rush back here to the newspaper, and so we can get those pictures into the paper the last edition of the day. So I, one of the things that, that I, when I got there, I was sorry, I was given an employee's identification tag, a little yellow piece of identification. And I had it laminated, and I put a shoestring through it. And even the secretaries had this thing. Uh, but I, I sensed that if I used it right, it would be like a press card. And it's the first time I went up to Capitol Hill, the same guy sent me up to Capitol Hill to pick something up at uh, the press gallery, and I flashed my card. And, and then I, I was able, with the flash of my card, to get into the gallery, sit and watch what was going on in Florida Senate. This card was like magic, and uh, it, was, it was a card of entry. And so anyway, so I had this card around my neck when I got to Burning Tree. And again, Bernie, back to what the country was and what the city was and what the suburbs were. Burning Tree was a segregated. There were no blacks who belonged to, to Burning Tree. There were no Jews who belonged to Burning Tree. Neighborhoods in the District of Columbia still had restrictive covenants attached to the deeds of houses uh, saying you will not sell your house to a black person or a Jew. Now, the Supreme Court had ruled restrictive covenants unenforceable. But imagine, they still existed. 
in these days. And so I went to Burning Tree and I flashed uh, this credential at the head caddy. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll take you out to, to where the president's playing golf. And uh takes me outside, and there's the president of the United States on a putting green. Hat on his head, keep the sun out, and bend over, taking practice putts. And I get real close to him. I get about 10 feet away, and there's one Secret Service man on That's all there was, at least in, that I could see on the other side of the green. That was it. You know, I didn't have the same kind of protection. And this gets to something else that, that you have now. And I'm sitting there, and I had a notebook with me. And I said, well, I'll make a few notes. And I saw that Ike's hands had brown spots on them. I wrote down, ooh, presents, brown spots on his hands. I didn't know what the hell I was ever going to do with a note, but I was just practicing, as it were. And I lingered as long as I could, made notes while the president of the United States swung his, his putter and sank these putts. And then the, the photographer was crouched down on the other side of the green, and uh, he motioned me when there was a little low. And I ran over to him, and he opened up his 35-millimeter camera and handed me rolls of film. And I got the hell back to the office in time. But imagine that, 16 years old, the president of the United States. Uh, and, I, and I'm there with this credential, this magic thing around my, my neck. Until two weeks later, Mary Lou Werner's co-state editor lived around the corner from me in Silver Spring, Maryland, and he would drive me to and from work on Saturdays. I got to know him a little bit. And uh, and he said, you know, Jack Kennedy's coming to Montgomery Blair High School on Saturday. I said, yeah, I know. There have been Secret Service men around and some people trying to, you know, make sure the place is safe. And he said, look, uh, it's your high school. Why don't you go and take notes not about what what the candidate, what Jack Kennedy does, but really about the crowds and what's going on. And we've got our top political reporter. He'll be with, with the candidate, with Jack Kennedy. But, but you, and he introduced me later that day to the reporter. And, uh, and, and he said, look, Carl, you just take notes and give your notes to this guy uh, after the president has made a speech. And, uh, said, okay, and that day I went to my school and I had this credential around my neck, and all of a sudden this convertible car with candidate Jack Kennedy sitting on the back of it comes rolling by, and I've already flashed my card, and I've got in this kind of bullpen with all these reporters and photographers, and the car comes, and I run out right beside it, and I'm taking notes. And meanwhile, I've been taking notes on everybody waiting for him to arrive, then I go down to the to the stadium where my high school football team plays, and, and it was totally filled with students and with people from the neighborhood, and you could hear the cheers for Kennedy and taking notes on that. And uh, the people who lived in the neighborhood had Kennedy signs on their lawns. I'm writing all this down and taking notes. And Kennedy uh, gave us it's really funny. First, he spoke to the people outside, and he got the wrong speech in, in front of him. And he talked about, uh, I'm really glad to be here in Southern Maryland. First of all, he wasn't in Southern Maryland. He was, he was actually farther north. And he talked about how happy he was to be here with the, a senator from California who was nowhere in sight because the senator in California 
That was from a speech in California. It was just a mess. And uh, it was funny. But then he spoke into Jim, and, and the place went wild. And, you know, I got to see all this. And, and then I unloaded my notes to, uh, to this reporter. But not only did I unload my notes, the reporter had gone into the school to the library where he was typing a story. And I flashed my credential going up the steps to the very familiar library uh, where I'd been thrown out of many a time for making too much noise and, or whatever. But the principal of the school was there when I flashed my credential. And he, he looked at me and he, you know, Bernstein, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm with Evening Star. I'm, and I walked right by him. It was especially because he knew me as a delinquent at the time. I already been suspended from the school a couple of times. It was a great moment in, in all kinds of ways. And literally half of the story in the paper the next day was from my notes. Because, Carl, so, it's to this point that we mentioned, which is what Rory and them teach you is to focus on the scenes to highlight and the context that they conveyed. What your notes did was exactly that. Well, that's very true. And to his discredit, the Washington Post only had its political reporter there that day. They did not have a reporter doing what I was doing. So our story was much better. I'm going to take the time to tell a story, a kind of humorous story. Okay. Uh, one of the things copy boys did is they, they got galley proofs from the composing room where the type was set upstairs. Uh, it was actually the type that was, what the newspaper would be printed from. And, uh, so I went up to the composing room uh, one day, and the, uh, the front page of, of the local section was being put together on a device called a chase, which was exactly the same size as the page, and thousands of pieces of type. And Sid Epstein, the city editor, was there looking at it, these pieces of type and making sure everything was bright. And one of the things that uh, printers could do who set this type they could read upside down and backwards because that's the way the type was set. And in the headlines, you, you'd read them upside down and backwards. And by then I taught myself to read upside down and backwards. And uh, I saw that, uh, that there was a mistake in, you know, a spelling mistake in one of the headlines. And so I, I and I said, sit up, stand was next to me. I thought I'd really show my stuff. So I put my finger on where the mistake was, and I started to show the composing room foreman and head of all this. I said, his name was Aloysius. And I, uh, I said, uh, Aloysius, uh, look at this. My finger was on the type. And Aloysius took his forearm, pushed it across that page. All of those pieces of type went on the floor. And Sid Epstein, he would get, he'd get angry. Or upset, his face would get red. He would be very level-headed. Never, never raised his voice, but his face would get red. I could see his face getting red. And he looked at me, and he looked at Aloysius T. Baker, and uh, I knew something was wrong. He said, "Kid, go down to my office. Wait for me." I went down to his office. Comes down about twenty minutes later. He says, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I said, "A reporter." Said, why do you want to be a reporter? I said, well, I've always been interested in secrets, and I like learning what's going on, and I've got a chance now to see what reporters do. That's what I want to do. He says, you sure you don't want to be a printer? I said, no, I don't want to be a printer. He says, you really sure you don't want to be a printer? 
I said, yeah. He said, because what you did up there, not only is it going to cost us about $10,000, which was a lot of money in that day, or maybe it was 2000 I don't know what to Because what I had done was only members of the International Typographical Union could touch a piece of tobacco. And if anybody else touched a piece of type, uh, it was a, like a religious belief. And uh, you touch a piece of type, it all goes goes out. And so the paper was 25 minutes late because of what I had done and what I always used Steve Baker had done. And so Sid Epstein said, you got to make me one promise. I said, what? He said, as long as you live, you'll never touch a piece of type again. And I said, yeah, I'll make that promise. And his face was still a little red. And I said, okay. And he pulled out this long sheet of sheets of uh, paper that he had pasted together and had maps on them and it had uh, typing on it, and he said, okay, the inauguration is three days from today. I want you to go to Fourth and Pennsylvania, and I want you to cover the crowd. All you do is make notes on the crowd and what's going on. You call in your notes to Herman Shaden, one of the rewrite men, putting one of the stories together. You cover that parade. You don't, you know, you don't follow the parade. You cover it from where your vantage point is. and." Uh, and, you know, it turned out it was the great blizzard before the uh, parade, the great blizzard before the inaugural day. And uh, I had my spot. I could see the Capitol building and could see part of what was going on in the Capitol as Kennedy was inaugurated. And it was so cold, I had two pairs of earmuffs on. I'd spent the night at my grandparents' house. So I, because to go to Silver Spring was too far away, and my grandparents lived about a mile from where the White House was. They owned a tailor shop near there. And um, and then the greatest part of Kennedy's speech, ask not what, what this country can do for you, but what you can do for this country. I missed it because I had two pairs of earmuffs on. And I had a transistor radio. And then I, and then I took the earmuffs off. And, I, and there was all this, I could hear all this shouting and clapping. And uh, then I heard on the radio, Howard K. Smith's repeat, Ask not what this country can do for you, but what you can do for the country. And uh, but the other thing I did covering that, I saw a bunch of buses parked near where I was. Well, there must have been 15 buses. And I wonder what it was about. And I went up and I asked one of the bus drivers, I said, what's this? He says, well, these buses are for all the Kennedy relatives and children. And they're going to watch the parade from the Treasury Department. And so I put that in my notes. Uh, and, and I, Covered the whole parade. Then the president of the United States, president had just been inaugurated in, in the, the Lincoln bubble top presidential limousine with the top down and Jackie Kennedy. And he passed right by me and the crowd was screaming. Interestingly enough, not just Mr. President, but Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. And so I wrote notes on that. And when I called Herman Shade and I, and I said, you know, there's just as much many shots for uh, the first lady is there, there is for Jack Kennedy. And so, you know, what an extraordinary thing to be covering the inauguration as a president of the United States. I'm still 16 years old. And then I became a dictationist because I typed so fast. And so within a year and a half, I became a dictationist. And, and that enabled me to cover all kinds of stories. I mean, like a reporter, like a real reporter. Murders. Drownings, bank robberies, great demonstrations, all kinds of stories. 
the story I told you about Mrs. Schwerner. All, all kinds of plane crashes. Terrible thing that stuck with me to this day, covering a plane crash and seeing. I won't even go in, into it in the smell. And doing all these things. And then came November 22nd, 1963, just a few weeks after that great March on Washington. It was the last month probably I was ever in college where I dropped out altogether. And uh, I was at a class, and the uh, class ended because it was coming into Thanksgiving weekend, and everybody was rushing to get out of school. And there were people gathered around a radio. And I heard Walter Cronkite's voice on the radio say, there's been confusion, but not panic. And the president has been taken to Dallas Parkland Hospital and uh, appears to have been shot perhaps in the head. And I said, what? And I ran to my car and I drove 60, 70 miles an hour to the star from the University of Maryland campus. I got to the building. And a, a wonderful reporter named Roberta Hornig was running out of the building with a notebook. And she said, and he said, he's dead. I said, what? I've been listening to Walter Cronkite. You said he might be dead. This Jerry O'Leary got it from his brother who worked for the CIA. The CIA, he's dead. It never occurred to me the president of the United States could be dead. And I ran upstairs and somebody on the city desk said, uh, Bernstein, put on your headset. Because took dictation with a headset, and the reporter would dictate you and you type it out. And then the national editor called me and said, Bernstein, take Broder from Dallas. And this is David Broder, the great political reporter who started at Star and then went to the Washington Post. And I'd taken dictation from David a number of times, and we were used to working together. Because one of the things dictationists did is they sort of Remember, these reporters are dictating on deadline, and they're trying to compose sentences and middle initials, you know, going into their stories when they identified somebody. And you're helping them out. You know, you're giving the middle initial if you know. You're helping them if the syntax is a little wrong. And Broder and I were good at working together. And uh, so Broder takes a deep breath. And you say, you ready? Yeah. Two pieces. Two priests walked out of Dallas Memorial Parkland Hospital at 1.54 p.m. today and announced, comma, quote, the president is dead, period, end quote, paragraph. And my hands were shaking so bad that I was, again, there are these emotional moments that uh, they misspelled hospital. They spelled it O-L. And uh, then about 10 minutes later, See, that team says to me, turns around and says, Bernstein, go up to the Capitol Hill and see if you can find Speaker McCormick, the Speaker of the House, who was the next in line under succession to be the President of the United States if something happened to the Vice President. And uh, still, nobody knew where the Vice President was at that point. Lyndon Johnson had not been seen on that plane in the, in the famous picture yet. Nobody knew where he was because there was concern about his safety, and he had been whisked away. So I, I run up to Capitol Hill, use that yellow card, gets me right inside, even though the, uh, the Capitol Police are starting to cordon off. Me. And I go up, try to find his office, and uh, there were guards out there, and I decide 
I go up to his office and, and nobody there but some Capitol policemen outside. And meanwhile, somebody has said to me, I think it was an elevator operator or somebody in the press gallery, that McCormick had been hiding under his desk uh, when the news came and he, the, the police put him under his desk. And, uh, and then I, when he, I couldn't get into his office, I ran up to the House press room and was told, no, that was not true about being under the desk, but he had been taken to a safe location. And the presiding in the Senate at the time that, uh, that the president had been shot was his brother, Ted Kennedy. And uh, so I started calling in these notes back to the, to the office. And then I was told to uh, stay there and stay reporting and to go to Lafayette Square across from the White House. And I covered the crowd in Lafayette Square and then waited through the night for the hearse to come uh, from Bethesda Naval Hospital where the autopsy had been performed. And the hearse came and you could see the flag draped coffin in the back of the hearse. There was a procession, Jackie Kennedy, the dignitaries, limousines. And then through the weekend, I, I covered the assassination, went up to the rotunda where he was laying in state. And I also took dictation on the last day from the reporters covering the procession. And, um, and, and meanwhile, you know, Kennedy was, he was revered. And the star, particularly Mary McGurry, and, and I think, you know, the press gave, gave Kennedy an, in retrospect, something of a deference. There was this dashing presence, unlike had been seen before, this young man with beautiful first lady. But one of the things that, that was really great is that I was still a copy boy. And Phil Kelly, the head copy boy, one day said, the president's press conference, this was early in his presidency, it was in the first few months, uh, the president had a press conference at the State Department. You and Mark Baldwin, another copy boy, go down there, and you're going to get a running text. And we want to get that text into the paper on the last edition. So you dictate a text back to us, to a dictation, which I wasn't yet. And uh, Baldwin and I go down there, and, and I went to almost every press conference that Kennedy had after that, dictating it in a telephone booth in the back of the State Department auditorium the text, but I would get to see the first part of the press conference before I would run to the back. I never never got to see the second part of Kennedy press conference, but I saw a hell of a lot of first parts. But you get the milieu that I'm working in, and at the same time, I'm also working the late shift as a copy point. I'm going out with Waller Gold to these fires, and unlike Waller Gold, I'd sit there and take notes on the fire. Waller, he put on his damn running coat. Uh, like the fireman wore and put on his hat. He run in the building with him. I, I wasn't about to do that. I was, as I write in the book, I covered a lot of fires in my time, but I never needed to be a fireman to do it. Uh, so, so you get some idea now. And, and one of the other things, right away, I had been as a copy boy. I'd been there a few months. And Phil Kelly, the head copy boy, said, uh, hey, you know, copy boys and dictations are to get some experience can cover local neighborhood citizens association meetings. Would you like to do that? 
you get $7.50 for covering them. So I went to my first citizens meeting to cover them called the Petworth Citizens Association in a neighborhood near where my mother had grown up and gone to school. I get there, and they're all white people. And this is an integrated neighborhood. And uh, so I finally go up to the woman that who's the head of the association. I, I say, why, why is this all white? She said, well, you, well, you know that, that the citizens association in Washington are all white, and the civic associations are all black. This is 1961, and there are even segregated neighborhood associations in the capital of the United States. And I thought, and then I went back and I tried to type my story. It was the first time I had typed a story. And I tried to type my story, and I, I made the lead of it to be about, because I thought, what is news? I thought, well, the news here is we got these black and white segregated Citizens Association. I took my story up to the nice city editor. He says, everybody knows that. It's been in the paper a hundred times. What happened at the meeting? What happened at the meeting was the canine corps officer with his dog had paraded around the meeting, uh, showing off the dog as a crime-fighting tool. And, and that became the basis of my little story, which was the first time I had a story in the, in the star. Well, it's been a remarkable career, honestly. And Talk about a lament, I think, that I read in the book, which is the death of the local newspaper. And it seems to me that your teeth on the local newspaper, reading police reports upside down and the like, and we don't have that now. And I watch news on TV a little bit, and I read bylines of reporters, and it seems that the lack of this local newspaper experience, the cutting your teeth as you did, informs the type of reporting we're getting today to its detriment. I'm wondering what you're thinking about that, Carl. Well, I think there's something to it. You know, if you read all the president's men uh, and then you read Chasing History, you see what local reporters do. Woodward and I were local reporters. We knew covering police. We knew, I knew from the star, you knock on doors, you go see people in their homes, you persevere. Uh, Woodward, meanwhile, he had no experience in the newspaper business. He came out of, out of the Navy. By then, I had 12 years. I was 28, Woodward was 20, 29. And he had applied for a job at the Post, and the city editor of the Post had said, you're not ready, go work for a weekly newspaper out in the suburbs. And he did for a year, and he learned how to be a local reporter. And a great one. Uh, so by the time of Watergate, he really knew what, what the hell he was doing. He had great instincts. And, uh, and interestingly enough, you know, one of the things about our Watergate coverage is we reversed roles all the time. What you would expect of me, I was supposed to be a better writer. Uh, he was supposed to be a clumsy writer. Some days he'd write paragraphs I could never write. And it has continued in this wonderful collaboration and let me just say one other thing, and whether you put it in the same order or not. One of the amazing things that has happened is that, you know, Woodward and I both, 50 years later, 50 years after the, you know, 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, we, we wrote a new introduction to the 50th anniversary edition of All the President's Men about Trump as much as it's about Nixon. 
And then we find ourselves, the two of us on January, you know, um, two of us on the exact anniversary of uh, June 17th, 50 years later, 2022, we're both covering together on the air and doing commentary, CNN, on the January 6th hearings about another criminal president of the United States, but a worse criminal than, in many ways than Richard Nixon, parenthetically. But what got us both there? And, and one of the things about being a reporter, back to that thing about the yellow tag that I that had around my neck with a shoelace, and one of the things about both of us having been local reporters, you know, we went out, and we knocked on people's doors at night. That's what you did. You didn't sit and, you know, go see people in their offices where they'd be subject to pressure. And, you know, we knew from being local reporters, we covered the Watergate story like local police reporters in many ways. And you can see it in all the president's men, and you can see it in chasing history. And But what has been the price of losing local newspapers? And losing, and, and let me say, local television news since the 1960s has been a disaster. It has almost no relationship in every market practically in America uh, to, to the best obtainable version of the truth. Even at the star, we called it lead and bleed, meaning, oh, yeah, they cover car crashes, shootings, et cetera, but no kind of cohesive coverage, comprehensive or contextual coverage of what's going on in the community or the city. But you had local newspapers all over America. And even before the Internet, those newspapers started to go under when chains like the Net started buying up newspapers, and especially in two newspaper towns, shut one of them down, stripped the other one, so it was really an advertising vehicle without any real local news. Then came the Internet. And so local newspapers died one by one by one by one. And so there's total dearth of local news reporting in this country until recently. And Bob and myself, a few weeks ago, we went to Austin, Texas, to celebrate the annual dinner of the Texas Tribune. Texas Tribune is the great reporting instrument in Texas today. Not the Austin American Statesman newspaper or, and website. Not the Dallas Times, Harold. No. Texas Tribune. A independent, non-profit reporting organization online known by the politicians of the state, everybody knows this is the great reporting institution in Texas today. 75 reporters by now, after a few years. A business model that is working. It started with philanthropy, by and large, but with a board that is truly independent. And it is a model for what can happen with local reporting in America today. And the former editor of Texas Tribune and some others, I might get involved in it myself, are going around the country and trying to establish similar reporting enterprises all over the country in every every state. It can be done. And look, though, at what has been lost. What are these local newspapers, whether you call it Star, which did it better 
you know, Washington Post still exists and has a local staff, but nothing like what it had in, in the days when I was at the Post when Woodward was covering local stuff. And But what do these newspapers do? They're the fabric that held communities together. They're social instruments as well as instruments of delivering news. But what did they cover? They covered high school sports. They covered local businesses. They covered features about local people of prominence. They covered neighborhoods. All that is gone. So there's no common meeting place for citizens as there was the common meeting house. The town square had become the local newspaper. And the loss of that is incalculable in this country. But maybe some of it is coming back with reporting from organizations like the Texas Tribune. Carl, I feel like I have to ask you this next question, which is what's your take on the wars that are going on around Twitter and delisting and putting people back on? How do you analyze that? So, uh, look, social media is both a scourge in terms of the best obtainable version of the truth, very often, if not most of the time, what, what you find on social media is antithetical to the best obtainable version of the truth. We can talk about why. At the same time, it is a remarkable instrument to enlarge in some ways, reporting. Look at all these pictures from terrible scenes that we're seeing from Ukraine, from all over the world, uh, from people who are using their cell phones to deliver news to the major news institutions or to people just watching and looking online. Twitter, look, what is it about social media that's so destructive? It's uncurated. A newspaper, a, a reporting organization, a network, by and large, these are institutions that have standards related to the best obtainable version of the truth, curation and editing that is devoted in some way to the best obtainable version of the truth, too often falls short. Too many of the institutions perhaps are a little less interested in the best obtainable version of the truth and have their own political or social or religious. And there's one thing we haven't talked about, which we really should, which is people who consume news. And, and I really want to go to that and you'll figure whether, whether or not. But also, I mean, you know, on Twitter has been a place where people can express their opinions where they can deliver uh, many, many reporters, put summaries of their stories up there on, on Twitter. It's a mixed bag. And there's a whole argument about free speech that has to do with online presence and the question of whether anything should be permitted as free speech or whether there should be uh, stuff that is not permitted by Twitter or others to go up there. I think it's a legitimate debate, but I think we also have to remember that the kind of media that uh, Twitter and others are, um, they're private companies. They're subject, one would hope, to 
to self-regulation, as well as, look, I'm a great believer in, I'm an absolutist about the First Amendment, about the right to free speech. You know, it's a little bit like the question of shouting fire in a, in a crowded theater. The old question, can you shout fire in a crowded theater, and is that protected speech? No, it's not. And uh, there are criminal charges for shouting fire in a crowded theater. And the equivalent of a legal structure, it seems to me, is necessary for instruments that continually shout fire in a crowded theater and where hundreds of thousands of people may be shouting fire in a crowded theater. And pretty soon that conflagration is not going to be one crowded theater. It's going to be a constellation of crowded theaters that burn up. So I think I think we got to find some kind of balance here because we haven't had instruments of mass distribution on this scale that are private institutions with no standards very often of curation, such as we find in traditional media, some traditional media. Those standards have been eroded also in part of the mainstream media. But I don't think there's an absolute right when you've crossed that line from free speech to shouting in a crowded theater, uh, and I think it's the right analogy, uh, then I think that there is a responsibility of these social media sites to uh, be required. If they can't do it by self-curation, there's got to be a mechanism. And I don't think it's right to shut down anything like a social media outlet. And um, I think you can see where I'm going in my answer here. I think, but the other question is, what has it done to the way people get information? And also remember, there have been real contributions to the best obtainable version of the truth made on social media. It's not just uh, a one-way street or just all pejorative uh, that it's antithetical to good information. But I think it's played a really nefarious role in our culture in terms of a general standard of what's acceptable news. And it's being confused often, particularly by younger people, with news, with the best obtainable version of the truth. And so the, but the big problem, it seems to me, and some of this goes to not just social media, but we need to look at who is reading and watching. We need to look at, let's talk about Fox News for a minute. Fox News is the most important political force probably in this country in the last 40 years. It's had huge effect. One of the things we do in journalism is that that we tend to look at political news and, and reporting. We separate it from the larger culture of our country, from the people of the country, as if Fox News exists over there with these people at Fox and, and Murdoch and Roger Ailes pulling all the strings. Yeah, they, they established something that didn't exist before, and it is 
turned into the most political force and movement in this country. You can never have had Donald Trump without Fox News and the president's extent. has nothing to do with the best obtainable version of truth. It does have to do with representing, in many ways, the views and opinions of people who have felt ignored, perhaps, by mainstream, other mainstream media organizations. And some of being ignored is, is a legitimate grievance, particularly the fact that we, by and large, the big major news organizations do a terrible job of covering the country between the two coasts. There are no, barely any dropout reporters. Uh, it seems to me we need reporters who are dropouts as well as college-educated reporters. No, I really mean it because they know other things. They've been on the streets, perhaps. they made their towns, cities better. They're, they're not dumber because they dropped out. They're great. You know, we should be hiring these people. You know, I, I feel strongly as a dropout about this. But let's go back to what is going on, what's been going on, not just with Fox, but with people in this country today. I don't know a metric for this, but I know I'm right anecdotally as well as there are some metrics. Some huge numbers, maybe a majority of people who look at, quote, news and consume information are looking to reinforce their already held beliefs, political, social, religious, not for the best. They're not even open to the best attainable version. Fox is a good example, Fox Nation, whatever you want to call it. But people are, you know, and this goes on both sides if you're going to talk about polarization. People are looking for information to reinforce their point of view. They're not open to the best obtainable version of the truth. Now, I would say it's more true of one side than the other. That, uh, but it's, it's, it, this is a scourge, and it's a scourge not perpetrated by the news media, by people themselves, by citizens of the country perpetrating it upon themselves. And the result is horrible in terms of uh, the repercussions for our social fabric, for who we are as a people. And let's go back to the example of Watergate. The beginning of Watergate, when we were covering the stories, most of our stories weren't believed by people who were reading them. And uh, weren't believed even by most of our fellow reporters in Washington for a good while until it became absolutely clear that what we were writing was true. But still, Richard Nixon remained wildly popular. He was elected by by the biggest majority, carried 49 states uh, in six months after the Watergate break-in, five months after. Our stories were known in the country by then. Uh, it had been disseminated. They were having almost no effect on. And our intent, of course, was just to deliver the news, just not to bring about a desired political result. And uh, But Nixon's popularity was huge. And then came various aspects of our reporting, and then a vote, 77 to nothing, to create in the Senate of the United States, to create the Watergate investigation, which is one of the three great, investigations by the Congress in the history of the United States, the other being the Army McCarthy, or modern history, uh, the Army McCarthy hearings, Watergate, and the January 6th hearings now on Trump, which are have established beyond any doubt 
the criminality of the president and former president of the United States, the first seditious president in the history of the United States. But in Watergate, it took months and a year and the tapes and all kinds of, and the Senate Watergate Committee, before majority of people in the country, 60, 70% eventually believed and expressed the belief that Richard Nixon should leave office for his criminal conduct. That openness to the best obtainable version of the truth doesn't exist on the scale that it did at the time of Watergate. And the other thing that doesn't exist is the heroes of Watergate in many regards, the political heroes, heroes were Republicans who had the courage to vote for articles of impeachment in the House, to would have voted for conviction of Nixon in the Senate. Not, uh, and I'll tell one last story here. When Bob and I wrote and reported the book called The Final Days, which is the second book after All the President's Men, uh, which is about the last year of Nixon in office. Uh, among those we went to see were Barry Goldwater, senator at the time, 1964 nominee of his party to be president of the United States. And by then, by the time of, of 1974, when Nixon was about to be impeached by the House and probably gone, and would have gone on trial in the Senate, Goldwater, and Woodward and I went to see Goldwater in his apartment, and he said he poured three big tumblers of whiskey, and uh, he took a big sip. We tried to take small sips, and uh, he said, I want want to read you from my diary about what happened uh, in that week that Nixon resigned. I said, okay. Comes back with a diary and starts reading. And what it's all about is how he, and the Republican leaders of the House and Senate, about five of them, went down to the White House to see Nixon. And Nixon, they sat across from Nixon in the Oval Office. And Nixon fully expected that, that he had a good chance to be acquitted in the Senate trial, just like Donald Trump was acquitted twice. And, you know, because you need two-thirds of a vote to be convicted in a uh, of high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, Nixon thought he might be able to, to do it. So he turned to the five guys across from him. And he looked at Goldwater, and Goldwater is reading this to Woodward. Goldwater, Nixon turns to Goldwater and says, Barry, how many votes do you think I have or how will have in the Senate for acquittal? fully expecting that Goldwater will tell him, you got a real shot, Mr. President. Goldwater looks at Nixon and says, Mr. President, right now you may have four votes. You're not going to have mine. At that point, Nixon knew it was over. The next day, he announced his resignation. Think of that. Think if somebody with the stature of Goldwater, a McConnell, had done that with Donald Trump. With more than enough evidence. That's the difference today. And part of that difference is that those Republican senators who have enabled Trump have been craven. I did a story for CNN naming 21 Republican senators 
who in private held Trump in contempt, disdained him, talked about what a horror and danger he was to the country. I named them. And none of them publicly had condemned Donald Trump. And so that's, that's a huge difference. And it's one of the reasons that there is this hunger that people seem to have to reinforce what they already believe. And they're dug in. And one last thing I'll say about it. what is news? What do I think is probably the greatest, most important story in the world today? And, and obviously the war in Ukraine is a big part of it. That is the pendulum for the last 15 years has been swinging against democracies all over the world. Look at Hungary. Look at Poland before the Ukraine war. Look at Belarus. Look at this country and its willingness to embrace by so many people in this country an authoritarian criminal president of the United States. Some 15, 20 countries in the last few years have moved from democracy to authoritarianism. Putin has been able to exploit this. Putin has destabilized the West. His leader of a country with 3% of the world's GDP has managed to hold Europe hostage, destabilized through subversion elections in Europe, tried to do it here. And yet, how have most of these countries that have become authoritarian uh, succumbed to neo-fascism, to fascism, to all these things that we never thought would be possible in democracies? Not by coups but by free elections. People have voted for fascism. Look at Italy. Now this happened. Look at how many people voted for fascism in France. Didn't win. Italy, they won. And so, so what is that great story? I think we look at Ukraine and the fallout and how it's going to impact the the future, if, if Putin were to prevail in this, would be able to do in Ukraine what he's done in Syria. But this movement of so many people in the democracies of the world to authoritarianism, fascism, neo-fascism, it's a horrible thing. And again, what is news? That's news. Is the truth neutral in terms of what's happened in Hungary? I don't think so. There's context. There's, but let's report on what's really happened and the significance of it. I think, Carl, that the book is a brilliant book from the standpoint, one of a memoir of a kid growing up and chasing history, as the title of the book speaks to. But it also is a terrific homage to the importance of a, a free and fair press gathering news, and as you have said repeatedly, reporting the truth. Let me say one other thing. I'm going to say one other thing about this book. Because I was having more fun in my life in those five years. Watergate is different. Watergate is exhilarating, and it reflects some of the fun of reporting. I mean, the book is fun. There are funny stories, because a lot of funny stuff happened, and it's about the joy of being a reporter 
and learning to be a reporter. It's not about, hey, this is heavy slogging. Even the heavy slogging part, you know, is, is, as I say, it's exhilarating. You get to do these amazing things. You get to, without being uh, highfalutin about it, you get to be of service. And at the same time, you're having the time of your life. Look at this kid. What do you got to do? And it became a blueprint for what I got to do later in life. And it's also about luck. Look at this seat he has in the capital of the United States 100 years after the Civil War and what he gets to do. And uh, there's a little chapter in there about going to after-hours clubs. Let me tell you, going to after-hours clubs at the age of 18 and and what went on in after-hours clubs, that was a hell of a lot of fun. And so that's reflected. It's it's a book also about what you would say, the, the high and the low. And being a local reporter very often was about the low, as it were, and about ordinary people, not just fancy people. And so that's what it, it's about, just as that's what reporting is about. And so I talk about luck, the luck to be there at this time in this kid's life, but also it is what you do with the luck. If you're lucky enough to be at the right time at the right place, as in Watergate, then it becomes what you're able to do with it. And uh, the luck is, you know, Woodward and I sitting up there 50 years later on the air, having both of us covered and written about Trump and looking at each other on the 50th anniversary of Watergate and covering a proceeding of the January 6th committee about another even worse criminal president of the United States. You know, the good luck. Uh, we look at it each other and say, can you believe this? We're here doing this after 50 years together? And again, the luck of being at the right place at the right time. And, uh, no, that's the story. It's a great story, Carl. I appreciate you having taken the time to write it, and I more appreciate the time that you took to talk to us about it. Chasing History, a kid in the newsroom. Thank you, Carl Bernstein. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.